0: I invite you please to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Our scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 13. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Would you please join with me in prayer? Father, uh, some of us are feeling kind of sleepy having lost that hour. Uh, Many of us are feeling... Um, overwhelmed by all of the things that have happened over the past week or the things that are going to happen in the coming week. And so we once again, in our weakness, uh, remember how much we are dependent upon you. Lord, we do not want to miss this time where you are speaking to us because your words are life. And so we ask for your help. Help for us to have still hearts, open to hearing you, Open minds that you would help me to speak clearly and faithfully so that together we, your people, might be strengthened and you might be pleased. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So some of you might be familiar with uh, the novelist Flannery O'Connor. She uh, was a novelist from last century, from the South, devoutly, devoutly, uh, devoutly Catholic. Um, and she's known for her, her wit, her, her satire, and even for her violence. There are some pretty dark stories that she told. And one time she was explaining why she told stories the way that she told. I mean, for example, there's one story, it's a short story, one of her most famous, where you've got this family of three generations driving from Georgia to Florida. They stop, their car breaks down, they meet an outlaw, the outlaw kills all of them, the end. That's the story. And, and so when she was asked, you know, why, why do you do this with so much violence in your story, she explained, it's because I'm writing for people who have a hard time hearing what I want them to hear. Uh, this is what her quote, she said, um, that a Christian writer in her day may well be forced to take ever more violent means to get his vision across to this hostile audience. When you can assume that your audience holds the same beliefs you do, you can relax a little and use more normal ways of talking to it. When you have to assume that it does not, then you have to make your vision apparent by shock. To the hard of hearing, you shout, and for the almost blind, you draw large and startling figures. So I bring that up because we're looking right now at Matthew chapter 25. We started last week, this week, and next week. And perhaps even last week you felt the solemnity, the sobriety of of how Jesus takes us right to that very last moment in time. This decisive moment where there is this sorting, where there are eternal consequences to our actions. These are our sober things. And what Jesus is doing, and he's doing in last week's passage, in this week's passage, and next week's is he is doing what I think the very same thing that Flannery O'Connor was seeking to do. He is, he is shocking us into awakeness. Because he knows that the great problem that most of his listeners have, whether it's in that day or us today, is not that you have people who are stridently, passionately opposed to the gospel. But it's that you have people who are asleep. You have people who are generally numb to the things that are spiritual things, that are calloused to the truths of Christianity. and So Jesus knows that what we need is for him to write in large and startling figures to shock us out of our slumber. And that's what happens as he takes us again and again to that last moment. And his desire is to help us to know that we need to be ready. We need to live even right now in such a way that we are ready for that day. He is shocking us into awakeness. And and this morning specifically, when he is calling us to be ready, he is specifically calling us to be ready to wait. To be ready to wait for gratification, for a delay in gratification. I say about gratification because when Jesus here, he says, you know, he's speaking about the kingdom of heaven. When he talks about the kingdom of heaven, he's talking about that last day when he returns and all things are made clear. And where does he go? He says the kingdom of heaven is like, well, it's like a party. You know, he's talking about a wedding feast. That's where this passage goes. And and for you to understand why that's an important image, you need to realize that in that day, especially for small villages, The wedding feast was the event of the year. I used to live in Sydney, as I've told some of you, and and I was there in 2000. And that meant the Olympics were there when I was there. And the whole city stopped. I mean, like, everyone paused. Everything was about the Olympics for four weeks. Everyone was consumed with that. Well, when a wedding happened in a small village, it was the Olympics for them. The, the, the wedding party was not like our party. Yes, there was dancing, there was singing, there was feasting, there was drinking, but ours last, what, three, four, five hours? Theirs lasted an entire week. And so, for people who are listening to this story, this wedding, this is an image of the highest point of celebration, of joy, of delight. And Jesus says, that's the kingdom of heaven. And this is not the only time we hear this again and again. We saw this in Revelation when we started at the beginning of our service. We see it throughout the Bible that, that God keeps on telling us that the very end, where this is all going, is a wedding feast. It is a non-stop party. It is joy. It is community. It is delight. We sometimes think that God's purpose is to make us behave Is to make us better people? No, that's not where God is taking us. God is taking us to gratification, to joy. And that's where Jesus takes us here. But the story is not just about the end, where there is delight and joy that we're all invited to. The story is about delay. So in that day, what we can, as we try to piece together the evidence we have of how weddings were, it, it seems that the most common way is that the bride groom would leave his house and would walk over to the bride's house. And then he would negotiate with the parents, you know, sometimes like dowry-related things. There would be promises made, covenants made. And then whenever that was done, then the bridegroom and the bride would walk back in this kind of parade, back to the bridegroom's house, where now the bride was going to live, and that's where the party would begin. And so Jesus hones in on this one detail of that parade. He says there are these ten virgins, and virgin, its the, translated, the reason that word is used is just to say these are young girls, they're not yet married. We should imagine somewhere between ages nine to twelve, so... So imagine like Emily Bartman and, and Marin O'Brien and Alex Piscoglia and seven others. So that's what we're supposed to imagine. And here's what these, these ten girls are supposed to be doing. They are, well, they're kind of like the flower girls, except instead of flowers, they have fire. So there's ten of them, and they're supposed to have lamps... And when this procession is going and this parade is taking place, they're the ones who, right when the bridegroom and the bride leave that house and start going, they are there along the way to escort them with these lamps or torches, they're the same word, to go the whole way in this great festal procession until they get to the bridegroom's house. So you have this picture of these ten girls who are just kind of maybe sitting on the road, it's evening, and the bridegroom and the bride are in the bride's house, and they're just waiting. And they've got their lamps, and the problem, verse 5 tells us, is the bridegroom is delayed. It doesn't take the amount of time they anticipate. It takes longer and, and longer And still longer and it's getting darker and darker. It's getting past their bedtime. And we're told that all ten of these girls eventually just doze off. They fall asleep. And and there's a bit of a problem with this because all of them seem to have lit their lamps in anticipation of when they thought the bridegroom was going to come out. So as they're sleeping, slowly these lamps are burning through the oil bit by bit by bit. And then suddenly at midnight, you know, the, the cry comes out. It says, at midnight there was a cry, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. And so these, these girls are literally, you know, they, they pull the sleep out of their eyes, they wake up and they see their lamps and they realize, uh-oh, we're almost out of oil. And there are two groups that we're told of. There are five who are described as the wise girls. And the reason they're wise is because they became they came prepared. They have a flask of oil, each of them, and as they're seeing the oil uh, running out, they just pour the oil back into the lamp and they are set but there are five others described as foolish. And they don't have any backup oil. Uh, Presumably, they just assumed they knew what the expected time should be We don't know what the delay was. Maybe there was negotiations with the bride's parents, or or maybe there was you know the bride was still getting dressed. They weren't expecting any of this, and so they only had just enough oil for the normal amount. And so when they hear it's midnight, and when they realize they're out of oil, they panic. They say, "Give us some of your oil," but the wise can't because then they wouldn't have enough. So they do the only thing they can do at midnight. They go scurrying back into the village, hoping they can find a shop that's willing to wake up so that they can finally get the oil. But when they do, when they're going, meanwhile, once they've found the oil eventually, they come back and realize that along the parade, no one is there. And they walk all the way back to where the bridegroom's house is. And the door is shut. They have missed the parade completely. And when they knock on the door, they're not allowed in. They're treated like... Uninvited guests like party crashers because clearly if they had been part of the parade they would have been in that parade and so they must not be supposed to be at this party. So the end you have these five girls who were not ready for the delay and because they were not ready for the delay they missed the party altogether. And Jesus' point here is that you and I, we are invited. We are invited to a wedding feast. We are invited to participate in this great end of the universe, beginning of the new universe celebration that he himself has bought for us through his death and resurrection. But for us to be able to participate, we need to be ready. Specifically, we need to be ready to wait. We need to be prepared for there to be a delay, at least according to our own timing. Because if we're not, we're going to miss out. You know, another time Jesus uh, speaks of sometimes when people hear the gospel... the the good news of what Jesus has done for them, they immediately will respond with this excitement, with this joy. And of course they will. They've heard they are forgiven. They've heard that God is for them, that God is going to be doing glorious things for them. They suddenly have hope. And it says they have excitement and enthusiasm. But then something happens. Life doesn't change as quickly as they expect it to. It takes longer. It's harder. It's harder. Things are slower, and their faith begins to fade. I mean, maybe we know of stories like that. I can think of friends of mine that I've known who, who at some point seem to have just clicked, and they've come to Christ, and it's awesome, and they seem to be filled with passion, and they're doing everything, every day, reading the Bible, going to church, and then a few weeks later you start realizing, wait a second, they're not, they're not here as much anymore. And a few weeks later, and, and they're gone. Jesus says these people are like when a seed has been planted in shallow soil. They spring up for a moment, but because they've never taken root, they don't have the resources to last. See, see they're not prepared to wait. They're not, they don't have the resources for the delay. Like the five girls without the extra oil, they, they're not able to have a sustainable faith. And so in the end, their faith crumbles. Jesus says, for you to be part of my people, for you to follow after me, for you to experience the joy that I have for you, you need to be prepared to wait. You need to be prepared for a delay in gratification. Now, I want to reflect with you for a minute on just how challenging that notion is for us in our day because if you think about it there is nothing or almost nothing in our lives that trains us to be able to wait everything around us is about instant gratification and it's become more and more that way every generation think about this music would be an example 200 years ago, if you wanted to listen to music, how would you go about doing it? Well, if you had some money, maybe you would invest in a pianoforte or some other instrument, and you would take years to get good at it, then you can enjoy music that you can make. Otherwise, you would have to find a time where the professionals are going, and you would go to visit, whether it's at a special concert or maybe even the local tavern. Always, you would have to wait to experience this. Then about 100 years ago or so, things changed, right? And then you are able to turn on the radio, and sure, you'll have to power through commercials, and sometimes you won't get the songs you want, but if you wait long enough, you will hear it right there in your own house. Or even more, you can buy a record. You can go to the record store get the record, bring it home, and listen to the songs that you want to listen to. But you still have to wait, just not as much. Now, how do we listen to music? Well, let's see. Press two buttons. I've always wanted to rickroll an entire congregation. (laughs) But you see, like, that was instantaneous, right? Like, in just one moment, boom. And we expect that for everything. How do I get stuff, a book to read, in about one minute on my Kindle, I've got that book? When we turn on the TV, what do we see given to us? Video on demand. I remember when I was in high school, One of my science teachers said, you know, we are the first generation to look in front of a microwave and tap our feet because it's taking too long. And that's in the 1980s. Now, we're a generation that taps our feet when the internet is taking three seconds to load a page. And it extends beyond that, doesn't it? Think about spending. I remember when I was a kid on a paper route, I was told that if I wanted something really, I could put it on layaway. Probably some of us don't even know what layaway is. You could go to a store and ask them to set something aside and you would slowly pay for it until you got it. No one does that anymore. Why? Because why? We can just get it on credit. We can get it immediately. Why wait? Or or think about even with sexuality. Why wait for the covenant of marriage when you can enjoy sex right now? And, and God forbid that we are bored while we are waiting in line for Starbucks for our cappuccino. We can immediately deal with our boredom right now by looking at whatever our phone has for us. Do You see that we are, we are conditioned in every aspect of our lives to expect immediate gratification. We have nothing that is training us to wait. So how do you think that's going to affect us in our relationship to God? Well, think for a moment about some of the things that are the aspects of how we relate to God. Think about about prayer and and Bible reading. Almost everyone I know who's a Christian believes that spending time in God's Word and praying is good and needed to grow, and almost everyone I know says that it's really hard. Now, why is it hard? It's not because it's physically strenuous, right? It's not because it's expensive, It's because it's slow. The first time you come to a book of the Bible and you're reading it, you're wanting this sense of connection to God, you're wanting some obvious application, and sometimes you're just frustrated and confused and bored. Right? Or or when we're praying, when we're praying, we don't get this immediately divine high-five. Our our phone doesn't suddenly ring with all these thumbs-up, good prayers. Right? We, We... we 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 don't see these immediate responses. I mean, sometimes we can pray for year after year. It's it's slow. And so that makes it hard because we're not accustomed to not having immediate gratification. Do you know the single biggest changes to the way that church has done over the last century? It's not the technology. It's that we've moved from focusing primarily on how do we best worship God to how do we best entertain the congregation. Because we want to make sure, you know, if the songs are a little off theologically, if sometimes the teacher is a little bit wrong, that's forgivable. But it better not be boring. It needs to be interesting. It needs to be relevant. We don't want the preacher to be telling us about something that's going to happen centuries from now, potentially. We want five steps to how to make a better life right now. Because we don't like to wait for gratification. And so is it any surprise that when we encounter in our Christian faith these times where we're looking to God for help and we're struggling and we don't see any answers, that our faith can fade? Because we don't know what it looks like to wait. We don't know how to wait. And Jesus says, you need to be not like the five who don't have the resources. There is going to seem to be a delay. You're going to expect my mercy and my grace to come more quickly than it oftentimes will. You need to be prepared. You need to have the resources for a delay in gratification. Another way of putting it is Jesus is calling us to having a sustainable faith. You know, sustainability is a big buzzword right now, and I think rightly so. A recognition that whether we're talking about farming or fishing or other businesses, we have to find a way to make sure we can do something that won't completely burn things through in the next generation. How can we be sustainable so that these things can last? Well, how can you and I be sustainable In the way that we relate to God? How can our faith be sustainable so that it can ride through the difficulties and last? That's the the question Jesus is saying you need to be thinking through. And I think it would be good for us, if there's one thing I would love for us to do in response to this passage, it's to think that question through How can my faith be made more sustainable? I mean, those of you who are in elementary school and high school, you probably know that it's not uncommon for people when they go off to college to sometimes kind of turn away from their faith. And so it's an important question for you to ask, what can I do? How can I be prepared so that my faith can make it through that? How can my faith be sustainable? And it's not just for for college students, for all of us. We know that there are different parts of life where it is going to be hard How how do we have the oil? What does it look like for our faith to continue through those difficult times? That's what this parable is asking us. And so as we think this through, let me just suggest three things that I think Scripture, three instructions Scripture gives us for how our faith can be more sustainable. They're not the only things that Scripture says, but they're three important things. One of them that Jesus says is that we need to count the cost. So another time when Jesus is speaking to a group of people, he says, Which of you desiring to build the tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Maybe some of us have sometimes seen a house that's on a block that seems to never be complete and we suspect we know the reason that someone began investing in something but did not check carefully whether they had the ability and the desire to finish the project that they started. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you need to count the cost. Before you set out on the journey, you need to think through, am I willing to pay to give what it takes to follow Jesus. Because if you're not willing, you're not going to make it to the end, he says. And So what's the cost? Well, Jesus says it right before. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. What's the cost of following Jesus? It's everything. Yes, the, the, the caveats still apply. When Jesus is saying you must hate your family, he's saying in comparison to me, that your love for me must be so great, in comparison it might look like hatred. He's not literally calling us to hate our family. And yes, when we follow Jesus, rarely will he ask everything of us. We don't suddenly have to sell everything and, and give it to the poor, but we need to be ready to. Jesus is saying, I will give you everything. Forgiveness, joy, hope, everything you need is found in me, but you need to first give me everything. There is nothing that we can hold on to and say, Jesus, I will give you everything but this. Jesus, I will obey you in every aspect of my life but this. Because there will come a time, almost certainly, when you will be forced to decide between following Jesus and holding on to this. And my prayer is that at that time you know which one to let go of. Jesus says for you to have a sustainable faith, you need to count the cost, and you need to accept the cost. If you're looking for just a a tangible thing to do in, in relation to that, Hebrews 12 talks about this race that we have to run, the race of faith, this endurance race. And it says, get rid of those things that hinder you, the sin that easily entangles you and the other things that weigh you down. In other words, sometimes there are sins that we are aware of that are slowing us down. Right now, perhaps you might know of something, a habit that you know is displeasing to God and you haven't let it go. And for us to run the race, Jesus is calling you to repent of it. Or there might even be good things, but things that right now are distracting you and turning your focus away. And Jesus says, we need to be putting those aside. A sustainable faith means counting the cost and accepting it. A second thing Scripture tells us is that a sustainable faith involves us regularly considering Christ. So I, I just alluded to Hebrews 12. Um, in the same very verses, Jesus says, uh, sorry, the Hebrews says that we, as we are running this race, are to fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Do you hear that? Here's how you won't grow weary and lose heart. Here's how to ensure that your your faith is sustainable. Consider Him. The, The oil that we need to keep going is the oil that comes as we consider Christ, as We spend time contemplating him as we look in his word. As we spend time together as his people listening. As we focus on Jesus. Focus on what it means that he has died for us. Focusing on who he is. Why? Because when we look at Jesus, we see someone who has already done what we are called to do. He has waited. When he came into this world, he waited for joy in the face of all sorts of suffering. He waited for joy in the midst of loneliness In the midst of exhaustion, he waited for joy as he faced sacrifice and rejection. He he waited for joy as on the cross itself he felt separation from God and cried out, My God, why have you forsaken me? He waited. And so he knows. He knows what it is for you and for me in the midst of trials and challenges to wait and he knows how to help us and to strengthen us so consider Christ because when you consider Christ you know you are not alone and what's more as we consider Christ we know that our waiting is not in vain because with Jesus he not only died but we see the end of his waiting when God raises him from the dead and Jesus says what has happened to me will happen to you I am the firstfruits. Where I go, I go to prepare a place for you so that when I come again, you will be with me. The waiting is not in vain. I have waited and I have experienced joy. And if you look at me, you can know that even as you wait, one day you will experience joy. You will celebrate with me. Consider Christ. Because considering Christ enables us to sustain our faith. So for sustainable faith, we need to count the cost. We need to consider Christ. And also we need... To come together. Because we can't do this by ourselves. I I talked before about how sometimes when people go off to college, they they kind of turn away. Almost always that story is connected to them, not getting connected to a group of believers. We, We need a group of believers. Hebrews says that we should be encouraging one another and we should not forsake gathering together But instead, stir one another on all the more as we see the day approaching. That is a waiting verse that's saying, we've got to do this together, guys. For us to sustain, for us to have what we need to make it to the end, we have to be a team. I shared this, uh, you know, a while ago. You know, a couple years ago, I ran a half marathon. And the only reason I made it to the end, because the last couple miles, I was completely on fumes. It was really two things. One was I told a bunch of high schoolers I was doing it. And I could not bear the idea that I'd have to tell them that I didn't finish. And the other one was Matt who was completely annoying the last couple of miles, not letting me stop. So there was an accountability and there was an encouragement. And those two things were the things that sustained me as I kept going. And and brothers and sisters, you and I, we need that, don't we? There are times that we are not going to be in our right minds. Where things are going to look bleak and we're not going to see clearly. We're not going to know the love of God. We're not going to know that hope is real. And we're going to need other people to tell us to keep going. And there are going to be times that we need to help others in that way. And the only way that happens is if we keep coming together. I mean, I know sometimes Sunday morning can feel exhausting because you're just already tired. Sometimes community group or discipleship group could just feel really ordinary. But God works in the midst of small things and ordinary things, and it is through those that we are encouraged and strengthened and kept going. Count the cost. Come together. And consider Christ. These three are just some of the things that Scripture calls us to. The larger principle is simply this. We need to have a faith that lasts. A faith that is ready to wait. Because God's timing is not ours. God will come again. There will be a celebration. God's purpose for us is joy, and we must always remember that. But it is not going to come on our timing. And so for us to be the people of God, we need, Jesus says, to be a people who are ready to wait. I invite you to take um, some time with me even now as we are kind of responding, to respond in prayer, whether that's confession or asking for help or just an acknowledgement and a commitment to try to to follow Christ in certain ways that he has spoken to you this time. And then I'll lead us in prayer in just a couple minutes. Uh, Would you please join with me in silent prayer? Lord God, even as we hear these words, um, you, through them, expose our weakness, my weakness, my impatience, our doubts amidst the slowness that sometimes it seems following you involves. Lord, in our weakness, in our sinfulness, we acknowledge our uh, utter and complete need of you. That we do not deserve your mercy, and yet you have shown it in Christ, and we acknowledge our need of him. That we are too weak to continue, but you give us your spirit, and so we look to him. Lord, we ask that you would give us a faith that lasts, that you would give us the resources we need to be your faithful people, to run the race you have set before us until we get to the end and are able to rejoice together. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here are the good news of the Gospel from 1 John. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. In Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. Thanks be to God.